if you want to use the book that, or the Bible uh, that's in the pew or in the chair, it's blue, you turn to page 1018. We're going to be, begin reading with chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of the chapter. After talking about the false teachers bringing in destructive heresies, speaking of their judgment, he then says in verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They count it pleasure to... Uh, they are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if... After they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome. The last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them the dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. 
Oh Lord, bless us with understanding of your word and faith to believe this word, to live out all that it sets before us, for it to shape us and mold us uh, into the image you desire, Lord. Keep us, O oh Lord, protect us, even as we come. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen. There was a doctor in my dad's practice who just in the normal course of things one day, they were just, they weren't, nobody was examining anybody. There was no medicine being practiced. He was just licking a stamp, something of this sort, when the other doctors, I think it was my dad himself, but another doctor noticed a black spot on his tongue. And he dismissed it quickly, and they said, no, 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 you have to get this seen about immediately. He did go to have it seen about. He had cancer. What's amazing is, this is a doctor. He chewed tobacco. He got a sore on his tongue and didn't do anything about it for months. Denied it. Totally ignored it. And by the time he went to see about it, it had gone so far that it eventually killed him within the year. This, the false teachers in Second Peter are teaching or scoffing at the coming judgment. And they give themselves to desire because of it. They deny that judgment. Chapter 2.19 says that they promised others freedom, meaning probably the freedom from judgment, so that they can be free to join them in their immorality, to join them in abandoning the word of God. And Peter is saying here that you can deny the coming of Christ, you can scoff at it, his judgment. And you can use that as your basis to live how you want, but your denial and your scoffing will not stop it from coming. It will not stop it from coming. And so the critical thing we must ask is how will I face that judgment? That's the most critical question anybody could ask themselves because it's the one sure thing I don't know anything else about tomorrow for me or any one of you. None of us does. But we all know this one thing. We will come before God's judgment. And so the title of this sermon asks, are you living within the rescue of Christ? And we're going to look at it from just two standpoints. Are you living within the rescue of Christ in your present trials And are you living in the rescue of Christ in the coming judgment? So this first section gives several examples of how God has the angels under judgment, how he judged those at the time of Noah and preserved him, and then finally intensifying his description, how he rescued Lot even as he brought judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. But notice how he concludes 
verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So, this is not so much saying the Lord knows how to rescue you in that final day, but the Lord knows how to rescue you now in the midst of trial so that you do not compromise your life and abandon Christ. He speaks of Lot and how painful, how agonizing it was that, that Lot resisted uh, evil in his day and how it tore at his soul, but he did resist it. He did not take up the lifestyle of Sodom. And so this is saying the Lord knows how to keep you in the midst of any and all dark societies. When you're surrounded by immorality on every hand and it's as close as the stroke of a keyboard, the Lord knows how to rescue you. He can and will rescue us in the midst of our trial or slash temptation as we continue to seek him. Actually, this is saying God will surely bring about a good answer to the prayer, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He will do that for his people as they seek him and trust him to do this. He knew how to keep Lot, and he knows what to do to keep you as well. He knows you. He knows your situation. He knows your weakness. He knows your desire. He knows your struggle. Actually, in the original, there's no how. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly. It's just, literally, it reads, he knows to rescue the godly from trial. Now, how is a good translation. But this means he knows what he has promised and he is faithful to do it. He never ignores you. He's never indifferent. He's always working in you. He's always keeping you. The Lord knows to keep you and rescue in the midst of trial. That is encouraging. That is encouraging. You see, living within the rescue of Christ begins now. His final rescue will be lavished upon us as Brian dealt with chapter 1 and verse 11. There will richly be provided you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But we are presently being rescued so that we can enter that final day. You read this in 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says this, verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This gospel is saving you is saving you to become more and more like Christ, is saving you to more and more leave your sin. And so the word sometimes, the Bible says you have been saved, and certainly it says we will finally be saved, but you are being saved. That's why I love this hymn that we sang, Abide With Me, uh, because there he is tenderly, humbly, uh, with, with meekness and trembling, 
asking for the Lord to abide with him. And though rebellious and perverse, meanwhile, you have not left me as I have left you. He is not going to abandon us. Jesus said, all the who come to me, I will never cast them out. I will keep them until that final day, as he says in John 7. And so we rest in that. And then as, we, as he says the Lord knows how to keep us from trials, he knows how to, and the translation should be this, to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment when they will be punished. So it's not so much that they're under punishment till then, but they're being held for that final punishment. Things look so upside down for so long that they can appear right side up. So many around us mock the idea of sexual purity, mocking the idea of the Bible's standards. And they would make us feel ridiculous for holding those standards. In many circles, being a virgin as an adult is something to be embarrassed by. It's laughed about in movies and TV shows that someone would ever reach adulthood and be a virgin. It's rarely admired in our society. Yet for those who flatly refuse to give themselves up to Christ and to his call of love and beauty and purity... If they remain against him, if we turn against him, if they continue to reject his lordship, then however much they may mock his ways, Peter says they are being held for the day of judgment. They are on death row even as they party. That's what Peter is telling us. And these people had no concern for that judgment. They had denied judgment. They had taken in Satan's fundamental temptation that he began with Eve. You shall not die. And you see, seeing their coming destruction is an added motive for our resisting this temptation to live apart from Christ. The temptation to abandon Christ. This verse gives us hope that he will keep us now and in judgment, but it will reminds us what will happen to us if we refuse him and turn away from him. That gives us yet another motive for obedience. Paul constantly does this in his letters, telling believers, don't be deceived, right? Believers, don't be deceived. He who practices such and such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so this is a regular thing that is set before us in Scripture. And its end is not to make you feel guilty, not to make you feel unworthy or set you back. I mean, uh, not guilty or unworthy of His grace, so to speak, that you wouldn't even ask for His grace or set you back on a performance basis with God. It's all the more to give you a reason to helplessly trust Christ when you see how how uh, deep the issues are, how large the issues are. To turn to Him in all your struggle and conflict. To ask Him to keep your heart, to keep your motives, to keep your joy, to keep your love for Him. 
to continue to believe his good will toward you, his abundant salvation for you, his great hope of the treasures of heaven, of the new heavens and the new earth, to keep these things bright and moving and gripping in your life. And as Brian pointed out in chapter 1, Peter says that the problem is not that you're not trying hard enough. When these uh, virtues are not being lived out, he says, it's you've forgotten that, he's, that you were cleansed from, his, from your former sins. You, your realization of that salvation, your joy over being forgiven, your love for him who would die in your place, who would graciously identify with you and take your sin away and give you a place of favor with God, that's fading. That's becoming cloudy, bland, and you have no feeling about it, no concern for it. And you've forgotten that you've been rescued from the very bond of sin. You have been delivered from the domain of darkness, as Paul says in Colossians 1, and you've been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. You've forgotten that and you're living as though it were not even true. And here again, isn't Owen such a great help in this beginning quote? I want to go back to that. He says, the father loses the company of his people because they are so ignorant of his love to them. You lose the company of his... When we leave his company, abandon his company and his fellowship... It's because we're ignorant of his love. And so, even though this is set in the context of judgment, he says our hearts are not drawn to him in love. We must learn to think of his everlasting gentleness and compassion and not ignore it. So, we must actively live within this rescue in our day-to-day faith. But then also, we show our, uh, we, we, we live within the rescue of Christ as well in the coming judgment. The coming judgment is everywhere in chapter 2. We didn't read the first part, but in verse 1, he, he, speak, he says, they're bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And in verse 3, their condemnation is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. We saw in verse 9 that they are kept for punishment. In verses 12 and 13, it says they will be caught and destroyed like creatures of instinct. They will be destroyed in their destruction. They will suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. He says in verse 14, they're accursed children. He pronounces the curse of God upon them, the everlasting curse of God upon them. And in verse 17, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for them. And verse 19, this mention of slaves of corruption means both slaves of depravity and slaves of destruction itself. 
And of course, in verses 20 through 22, that it's worse that they've done this than if it had ever, never been believers at all. This is because they've tasted, they've, they've been amongst God's people. They have felt something of the powers of salvation as even the writer of Hebrews talks about those who, have, who turn away. And it's interesting that in many evangelical circles, if someone's been among God's people, confessing and worshiping and serving, and then they completely irrevocably turned away, many would say, well, at least they asked Jesus into their hearts. You get the feel that this writer would not say that, right? No, no, it's not that they just asked Jesus into their heart and everything's okay. Is that this condition is worse than if they had never come to Jesus at all. What a warning to us. What a warning to us. And what were they like, these who were facing this judgment? It says in verse 10 that they despise authority. And this is indicated especially in the way they don't even tremble at blaspheming the glorious ones. That is probably the good angels. They may have been blaspheming them because they were connected to the giving of the law in Moses. And so they spoke horrible things of even judgment and ridicule upon them. Even though those angels, as this is probably referenced to Jude, where uh, Michael will not pronounce judgment on Satan, but says, the Lord rebuke you. Think of anybody, the head angel, you know, one of the great princes of angels could go ahead and pronounce this. But no, in knowing his own place, God is the one who judges, not the angel. They tremble in all of their glory and power to take that upon themselves. But these men don't mind it at all. He even calls them, uh, compares them to beasts in verse 12, and even maybe worse than beasts as uh, Balaam was corrected by a beast, right? Showing that Balaam was maybe under the beast. And he says, that's what they are like. They're liars. Even at the Lord's Supper, they are deceiving as he says, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They're adulterers, insatiable for sin, he says. Indulging, verse 10, in the lust of deviling passion. It says they're greedy. And then it says they're waterless springs. They're, they're like those who teach refreshment, the, the, the teaching of refreshment, but they have nothing to offer. They departed from the water of life, and so they're waterless springs. And then they themselves will have the storm of judgment break out upon them. And then they are preying on young and new believers in verse 18. How tragic and horrible this is. Getting to those who know very little, and this has happened so many times in the church. Before people can even get a good rooting and grounding, someone is pulling them away by false teaching. And 20 talks about 
escaping the defilements of the world and then entangled in them and overcome. We should think of this much as John speaks of the Antichrists in 1 John 2, whom he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so they were numbered among the people of God. And outwardly they appeared to be a part of the people of God. But they turned away and became entangled in what they had once abandoned. And so this terrible proverb of the dog and the pig, both uh, animals that were despised in this society. Don't worry, dogs weren't the same as they are now, okay? Um, and to see them do this horrible thing is the most graphic way that he can paint for us. This is what it is to abandon the glorious salvation in Christ to live a life apart from him. And certainly this speaks to leaders in our day that have lavish lifestyles, hoarding wealth, that encourage others to hoard that wealth. It is also damaging for leaders who are actually not speaking out against immorality or going along with it themselves or playing it down all part. Because the teaching here, though it's specific about there being no judgment, it's more about how they're living, the lifestyle that they're... Because you can see this in the description. He's not going through and saying, they taught this wrong, they taught that wrong. It's how they're living. And their life becomes an example. Their life becomes a teaching. Walk in this way. Follow me where I go. And as it says, they lead them astray. But this, of course, applies to every single one of us. That this judgment is coming upon the world. And it's coming upon all of those who have refused the Lord Jesus Christ or refuse his lordship as they are refusing it here. Refusing to go the way that Christ has laid out for his people. A way of beauty, a way of purity, a way of love, a way of generosity, a way of goodness. And they've turned away from it. And so I want to talk just a bit as we close about this coming judgment. Romans 2 lays this out and it's it's striking because Romans 2 is particularly spoken to the Jews who were quite self-satisfied that they were okay in terms of the judgment of God. Even though, as later, he says, you yourselves are committing adultery. You yourselves are breaking this law of God and thinking it won't affect you. But he says in verse 6 of chapter 2, to these Jews and to us, he will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. 
doesn't mean that they earn it. It means this is the lifestyle that Christ has saved them for. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being that do, who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. To the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. And that is simply to underscore our need to trust in Christ and be within his salvation. Which grants us forgiveness and favor in the sight of God and which salvation keeps us and continues to abide with us throughout our whole lives so that we will not abandon him and brings us finally in the safety of Christ even to judgment day itself where it says before him we will be blameless with great joy. That That is the critical thing. Are you living within that salvation? Are you living within his rescue? And this is striking, isn't it, in 2 Corinthians 5, where he says this in verse uh, 10. No, I mean, I wasn't making it there because I was in 1 Corinthians. That's not the verse. (laughs) For we must all appear, notice, before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, this Christ cannot be ignored. For he is the one that will be on judgment seat. He is the one who has died for sins. He is the one who's graciously offered us this free forgiveness and favor with God that we do not have to earn, that we cannot earn. He gives us his righteousness so that we can stand in this righteousness, secure and safe for our whole lives and in judgment. And he promises us his spirit to renew us and transform us. How tragic that this Savior who offers himself to any of you and me could end up being your judge because you refuse his goodness, because you refuse his love. You refuse to entrust yourself to his gracious kingdom and lordship. And so Paul can put it this way in terms of The coming judgment. Here's shorthand for what happens for us. He says, You turn, this is at the end of 1 Thessalonians 1, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. We will face that judgment. You can face it on your own, or you can trust in Christ who delivers all who put their trust in him from the wrath to come. Are you living within the rescue of Christ?
again hear the call as we've already read it from Isaiah 55. Come to the water, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. You bring nothing. You earn nothing. You come and completely trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. It was tragic that that doctor did not face the reality of the cancer that he had. But it pales in comparison for us not facing the fact that judgment is coming to this earth. Far, far, far more important that we face that reality and rest in Christ as our salvation. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word which pulls us in along by the love of Christ and shoes us away from a lifestyle of sin by even the judgment that is coming. Oh Lord, in both of these you love us in the same way. You love us to protect us from destruction, to rescue us from destruction. Lord, we pray, keep our motives strong. Hold us in in the face of so often the way our love fades, the way the grip of grace, the grip of the cross can lose its hold, not because of it, but because of us. We lose the grip of faith and We let these things fade so easily. Oh, Lord, we rest in you that you will abide with us, that you will keep us, that you will preserve your people, that even now we are being saved from the trials that we face and we will be saved and within your rescue in that final day, blameless with great joy. Amen.